on today's episode of Mile Higher. The baffling disappearance of Joan Rich. Barbara and Joan chatted for a bit. She noted that Joan was in very good spirits and nothing seemed to be bothering her. I saw her run beside her car. I saw something red. Who really knows? I'm not accusing Martin of anything, but we don't really know if she was in a dangerous situation or unhappy. It is weird to not at least go to the door and be like, hey, Barbara, you mind watching my kids for a few minutes before yeah. just being like, I'll be back. Seeing that person, obviously, we don't know if it was Joan walking with blood dripping down her leg. It seems like contact blood stains too. Like mm. blood was spread around by the individual that was bleeding as opposed to like blood spatter from some type of traumatic injury or gunshot or... Quite a possibility that she staged her disappearance and left on her own accord. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 267. Today, we are diving into an older case, the baffling disappearance of Joan Rich. Now, this one, I feel, has not been covered as much as it should be, in my opinion. I, I'm surprised, I guess I should say, that more people haven't talked about this one because there are just so many intriguing elements to it a real mystery and because it's so old you know there's some parts of it where it leaves you wondering how much of it is true in my opinion Does potentially that make sense? potentially yeah it's just it's always harder with older cases because there just doesn't isn't that like precision well it's, it's one of those cases today. where the individual just vanishes mm -hmm. in a seemingly thin air and there's some very weird things that are left behind in the wake of her disappearance that just really make absolutely zero sense. Mm -hmm. And it, it sends you down a lot of different rabbit holes of yeah. possibilities of what may have happened to her. Definitely. But before we dive into this case, we wanted to share with you what we've been up to lately. Yes, we actually just got back in town from working on our latest documentary. It's Woo. been a while since we last made our couple years yeah our last documentary was apartment 801 which was released in the beginning of 2020 can't believe that and then obviously very shortly after that pandemic hit and we had a baby and many things happened to delay us from working on this project but we have had this specific case um in the works and working with their family for the last couple years and we finally got to do it some of you may remember that we were supposed to go out and shoot this documentary in April. And then our daughter was sick and in the hospital. And so we had to reschedule it. So we just got back and it was quite an experience. It was. To it say was the a least. wild time. Yeah. Um, it was hot as hell. Yes. I don't want to say where we were, but yes, it was hot. Very hot. Extremely hot and humid. Mm -hmm. But this is really a case of extreme um corruption injustice it was um pretty breathtaking to see it all in person to witness some of this um firsthand it was eye-opening in a lot of ways and we can't wait to share it with all of you and for you guys to hopefully help this family maybe get justice one day don't you feel like it's also just given us so much more perspective and knowledge on yes. on true crime as a whole, especially mm -hmm. when covering 
similar types of cases and really just all cases that we cover on the show, I mean, mm-hmm. can relate back to it. I mean, we talk about police injustice a lot of the times mm-hmm. and sometimes I feel maybe we might go too hard on police and things like that. But then when you actually go and see, yeah. see things firsthand, you're like, wow, this really is the like, we don't dismal reality of, yeah. of the criminal justice system here in America. Mm-hmm. It's, it's truly mm-hmm. being in that police station was shocking. And yeah, it was so good for us to get that firsthand look at everything because, you know, when you when you talk about these things, sometimes it's hard to really understand the gravity of the situation until you're actually there. And I know that after we worked on the Christian Andriakia case and did that documentary, Apartment 801, if you haven't seen it, um, that really changed our perspective on everything. And I kind of was in need of that reset. Yeah, you know? me too. I think the other thing too that surprised me so much was just it was kind of expected when we went down to Meridian, which is a smallish town. It's not like super small, but small in comparison to where we just got back from. I mean, mm-hmm. we got back from a major metropolitan city and it was almost worse yeah, when it, it comes to the social structures that are in place to support the citizens of that city and and it's just I was just completely mind blown. Mhm. And really not surprised that they have the issues that they do when it comes to solving crime and just how they interface with the public. I mean, it's mm-hmm. way worse than we th- than we could have ever imagined. So we are hoping to get this documentary out before the end of the year. That is the plan. We will see how things shake out. Obviously, we have to now put everything together. We still have to conduct a few more interviews from home. Um, but yeah, that's that's the plan and, and you will be seeing it on youtube so it'll be accessible for everyone and yeah we're excited we really poured our heart and soul into this and our team was amazing shout out janelle tom and james it's a project we're really gonna be proud crew. of for yeah, sure yeah i'm very proud because i mean we're we're doing a lot of different things here at malhar media beyond just podcasting and we're trying mm-hmm. to help as many people as we possibly can mm-hmm. in the process yeah um, so I'm really excited to see it come together and share it with all of you. I have to say, even though it was depressing and discouraging to see the state of things, and it was very emotional interviewing this family and people surrounding the case, it also gave me, I don't know how to put it, like a sense of, I was just so impressed by so many of the people that we interviewed and their determination and their strength that I feel uplifted and inspired coming home. Especially in such a hopeless situation. Yeah. Where the the, the light at the end of the tunnel is very dim. Mm-hmm. But despite that, people are banding together and the strength that they exhibited from all parties, family or just those, you know, who maybe weren't directly involved with the case itself, but just have tried to support and, and be there for the family was truly mm-hmm. unbelievable. It was very inspiring. So we look forward to that coming out. All right, well, let's go ahead and jump into today's case. We're going to be talking about Joan Rich, as I mentioned, Joan Carolyn Bard. She was born May 12th, 1930 in Brooklyn to her parents, Harold and Josephine Bard. Joan was an only child and they lived in a comfortable upper middle class neighborhood in Brooklyn and Chicago where her father worked. 
But with the Great Depression in full swing, times became tougher for this family. And by 1939, Harold had either gotten a job in New Jersey or was unemployed. We weren't able to confirm. Like I said, some of the details around this because it's so old were a little bit more difficult to obtain. But regardless, at that time, the family was living in an apartment in Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. So it was a much more modest home than their previous ones. Joan was very introverted, sensitive, and loved reading books. She was quiet and wasn't the type to wear her heart on her sleeve. In 1939, both of her parents, Harold and Josephine, died in a house fire that authorities deemed to be suspicious. Both of them had died from smoke inhalation in the apartment. Harold was actually found on the ground with the phone receiver still in his hand, and investigators believe he died trying to call for help. Josephine was found on the couch dressed in a robe and appeared that she fell asleep while playing solitaire. The family's German shepherd also passed away, and the dog was very protective, and he was trained to bark if someone unknown had approached. A neighbor reported that the dog was found wrapped in a blanket in the basement, and it seemed as if someone had tried to put him to sleep before the fire started. But the fire chief's report states that the dog had actually been sleeping next to Joan's bed on the third floor like he normally would. So the cause of the fire was determined to be a tragic accident resulting from a faulty lamp cord, actually. But some people have floated the idea that there's a link between the fire and Joan's case. But from everything we know, it appears to be an unrelated tragic freak accident. Joan was off visiting her grandmother at the time. And so obviously when she got the news, she was heartbroken. Her world as she knew it was completely shattered. She was left an orphan at the age of eight and she was adopted by her mother's sister, Alice Natris, and her husband, Frank Natris. Frank changed Joan's last name from Bard to Natris, and she moved into their home in New Rochelle, New York. And so she went from an only child to one of four and then eventually five kids. But life for Joan really didn't get much easier after she was adopted by the Natrises. Frank had what many people call little man syndrome, and you could tell that by the way that he ruled over the house. He was very assertive and he really just wanted to be the king over everything. He even dictated what the family talked about at the dinner table. Frank was the president of his own music publishing company, but it was not successful. So as the years went by, the family became tight on finances. And as you can imagine, when this happened, this only added to Frank's stress and his very controlling behavior. Joan was close with her adopted siblings, which helped, but sadly, there was something very bad happening in her home life. It's been alleged that Frank was sexually abusing Joan, and this began when she was a teenager. Later in life, Joan alluded to the abuse to her husband, but she was understandably not very fond of talking about it. The issue of this abuse is definitely relevant to this case, and we'll be discussing it more later on. But anyways, Joan attended New Rochelle High School. Just like she'd been as a child, Joan was quiet. She was the type to only go out when friends persuaded her to. Joan was also a very bright student who worked hard, and that hard work earned her a major scholarship to Wilson College in Pennsylvania. In 1952, she graduated with honors with a degree in English literature. She worked at two publishing houses after that, Harcourt Brace and World, and briefly she was at Thomas Y. Crowell Company, both in New York. She started at Harcourt Brace and World as a secretary and then moved up as secretarial manager and then executive secretary. Joan was very good at her job. 
She was an ambitious and driven woman, and despite the bad hand dealt to her in her childhood, Joan really made it. She was a self-made success story, college-educated with a good job, and was just doing well for herself. And Frank, obviously, was pretty jealous at that and didn't like it at all. The situation at home was so unbearable that after college, Joan decided not to move back home. She was sort of a homebody, so she did live at home for a short period at one point, but the decision to mostly stay away stemmed from the fact that Joan felt like she had no home there. So in 1953, Joan's roommate set her up on a blind date with a guy named Martin Risch. And at the time, Martin was studying at the Harvard Business School and Joan was working in publishing in Manhattan. She was 23 and he was 24. And the two of them hit it off pretty quickly. In fact, Joan came home from that date and told her aunt that she met the man that she'd like to marry. And Martin felt the same. The two started dating and quickly got engaged and they got married in 1955, which was two years after they met. The newlyweds moved into an apartment in Brooklyn and Martin got a job working at a paper company while Joan continued to work in publishing. In 1957, Joan gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Lillian. Joan decided to leave work after she was born. She gave up her career and became a homemaker. Martin was frequently on business trips, but Joan was tough stuff and she knew how to take care of herself. Plus, the marriage was happy by all accounts. Family members said that Joan just adored Martin. They both had suffered a lot of loss in their life. Obviously, Joan had lost both of her parents, and Martin had also lost his mother. So their families thought it was so wonderful that they had found each other and were so happy together. They were also a good match intellectually. They could sit on the porch and debate politics and the arts for an hour and not have any hard feelings, just stimulating conversation, even if they didn't end up agreeing. In 1958, the Rishes moved to the suburb of Ridgefield, Connecticut, and it was the perfect home for them. The commute was ideal for Martin, and they preferred the quieter, more country feel of the town. Joan's neighbors say that she really seemed to love living in Ridgefield. Her life was her home and her family, and her neighbors said that she was, quote, a very happy person. And just like her landlords in Brooklyn, everyone loved her. And then in 1959, Joan and Martin's son David was born. The family then moved to a bigger house in Ridgefield near the town library, which only made Joan even happier. At least twice a week, Joan would walk to the library and check out new books. She'd always been a very avid reader, and her tastes were very intellectual, with occasional best-selling novel mixed in. Nature was also one of Joan's loves. She frequently took walks with the kids down country lanes and in the woods. Joan was also involved with the local chapter of the League of Women's Voters, where she'd help with the phone banking. Life in Ridgefield was idyllic. But in 1961, the Rishes had to move again. Martin had gotten a new job with a different paper company the year before. And now he was getting promoted, which means they had to relocate to Lincoln, Massachusetts. Lincoln was about 165 miles from Ridgefield near Boston. Neither Joan nor Martin had any family in the area. But Joan did have an old friend there named Sabra Morton. And like Ridgefield, Lincoln was more of a country area, but still close to things to do. Lincoln was also an affluent, safe town. The house they moved into is a beautiful white Cape-style home on Old Bedford Road. It had a two-car garage, an ample backyard, and Old Bedford Road was a paved country road just off of Route 2A. Many people said that Joan was comfortable and loved being a wife, mother, and housewife. She had a happy marriage, and she loved her husband and kids. But others say she was not content with her life. She was a very ambitious woman, and being a housewife didn't satisfy her. In the future, once her kids got older, Joan was thinking about becoming a teacher. So this leads us to Tuesday, October 24th, 1961, which just started as a normal day for the Rishes. 
Early that morning, around 6.30 a.m., Martin woke up and got ready for a business trip. He said goodbye to Joan and got into his 1957 Plymouth as light from the morning sun first started to trickle in. At 6.50 a.m., he backed out of the driveway and headed to Boston Logan Airport. He's going to be staying overnight in New York and visiting a paper testing lab. Eastern Airlines flight crew confirmed he got on his 9 a.m. flight. Also, the business associates he saw that day confirmed his whereabouts for all of the 24th. So that's just something to keep in mind as we get further into this case. Joan had a full day of errands to run, and nobody's sure exactly what time she and the kids got up, but by 9.15, they were all dressed, fed, and ready to go for the day. At 9.20 a.m. that morning, Joan's friend Sabra Morton called Joan. The day before, Joan was babysitting Sabra's son, Michael, and when she dropped Michael back at Sabra's house, she was in a hurry. Sabra found this odd and called to ask why she was in such a rush. But again, Joan couldn't talk for long as she was rushing to get out the door to get to her dentist in nearby Bedford. Both she and her daughter Lillian had appointments that day beginning at 9.30 a.m. After briefly talking to Sabra, Joan dropped David off at Barbara Barker's home across the street. Again, since she was in a rush, this conversation was brief. Joan had been to this particular dentist before. Dr. Goldstein was Sabra's recommendation, and earlier that month he had found and filled 11 cavities in Joan's teeth. And at this particular appointment, he checked out Lillian's teeth and filled another one of Joan's cavities. He used lidocaine as the anesthetic. And for those of you who don't know, lidocaine is a local anesthetic. It is and was very common and doesn't produce any mental side effects. And seeing that Joan had already had 11 cavities filled earlier, which probably took a lot of lidocaine, it's likely safe to say that she was not allergic to it. During this visit, Joan told Dr. Goldstein that she was very happy living in Lincoln. Nothing about her behavior signaled him that she was anxious or depressed. She paid for the visit and scheduled another one for the following week. Then, around 10.15 a.m., Joan and Lillian went shopping. She spent $8.50 on a bra for herself and clothes for David at W.T. Grant. It's believed that she then stopped in Bedford to get some food. After that, she and Lillian arrived at the Barker home just before 11 a.m. The whole trip took about 90 minutes, and while they were out, the mail and milkman made drop-offs at the house as well. Barbara and Joan chatted for a bit. She noted that Joan was in very good spirits, and nothing seemed to be bothering her. Nothing was unusual. Joan took the kids back home, changed into a dress, a sweater, and blue sneakers trimmed with white piping. Then an employee of the clothes cleaning company that the Rishes used came to the house at 11.15, and he was picking up some of her and Martin's suits and skirts. He and Joan had a normal, quick conversation, and again, he said that nothing seemed wrong with her. Then it was lunchtime for her and the kids. Joan had a sandwich and possibly a beer. And at noon, Joan put David in his crib for his daily nap, and she always put him down at noon each day, and he slept till about 2 p.m. After putting David down for his nap, she tidied up around the kitchen and probably sat with Lillian for a little bit. And at 1.20 p.m., Barbara Barker allowed her son, Douglas, to go to the Rish's home. He was going to play with Lillian. And everything for the next half hour was normal. Joan tended to the garden. She caught up on some reading and played with the kids. But then at 1.55 p.m., Joan walked Lillian and Douglas over to the Barker's yard. She brought along Lillian's tricycle, but what's odd is that Joan didn't speak to Barbara. She didn't knock on the door or try to at least let her know that the kids were there or what she was doing. She just dropped them off there and then went back home. Barbara hadn't seen her when she'd done this, so she didn't know that the kids were there at first. Joan had told them, quote, I'll be back, and then she went back home. 
David was still in his crib sleeping. 1.55 p.m. was around the time that David would be done with his nap. Around this time, Joan's neighbor, Virginia Keene, had glanced out her window. She didn't see anything unusual outside the home, only a white sheet in the yard. What's interesting is that this sheet is not mentioned in the police reports. Do you think it's weird that she just brought the kids back over to Barbara's and basically dropped them off in the front yard without telling Barbara anything? Or do you think it's kind of normal given the time period? I don't know. It's hard to say since we weren't in that time period. It probably was pretty normal. Nowadays, that would be very strange. Mm. But why? Maybe she just wanted to have some alone time or maybe she wanted them out of the house for a specific reason. But David's still in his crib sleeping, too. It's not like she got all of them out of the house. Yeah, but, I mean, he's sleeping. So she then has time to actually right, do something. Right, the kids that or... need parental supervision mm-hmm. are with Barbara. It is weird to not at least go to the door and be like, hey, Barbara, you mind watching my kids for a few minutes before? Yeah. Just like being like, I'll be back. Mm-hmm. And that's all she says. Could have just been the time period, but maybe she was in a rush. Right. Could have just been kind of a rushed decision there. The idea has been floated that maybe she was bringing someone to the house or meeting someone at the house and she didn't want the older kids to see that right. because Martin didn't time. maybe didn't know about it and you know kids are going to say like so- someone came to our house today and maybe she didn't want them to see whatever was going on at the house. But wouldn't they see somebody like pull into the their driveway? Yeah maybe. If she just drops them like she didn't even like make sure to like walk them inside and like make sure they're actually inside the house. She's just, it just seems very rushed. Like, drop them there. Yeah. I'll be back. Plus, David could wake up at any minute. Right. If someone was there. It doesn't make sense, Mm-mm. really. What do you guys think about the theory that someone that she wasn't expecting came to the house? You know, and or she, she sensed the kids out. something was wrong and she thought maybe it's safer that they not be on the property, not be by the house. I mean, that's... That seems more reasonable to me because it seems like she's kind of flustered in this moment. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost like like she almost doesn't know what to do. And that was the best thing that she could think of at the time was just get them off the property. Or we're just reading too much into it. And that was just very normal to send your kids over someone's house. Maybe she wanted, she needed to get something done or wanted some alone time while David was still sleeping or maybe the kids wanted to go over there. I mean, there's well, think about our childhood too. We just go over to our neighbors' houses randomly, and oh, totally, yeah. Without I her, did it wasn't too, like yeah. her parents, mm-hmm. especially if it was like across the street or up the street, wasn't like, mm-hmm. "Mom, I need you to walk me up to the neighbor's house." Like, no, if you're old true. enough to just go play with your friends, you just go play with your friends. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. That's how it was for me growing up too. So, yeah, I mean, you can go a bunch of different ways here. I think in the context, though, something was up. Mm-hmm. That's there was a reason she was more you know adamant about like almost implying stay here i'll be back to get you later but wasn't just like go play come back home when you're done type of thing she was very like i'll be back to come and get you versus giving them a time or an open invitation to come back home whenever Mm -hmm. i don't know that might be really reading into the weeds but she's also lillian is also like four years old yeah that's true i mean it's very young to just yeah. be walking around. No, that's true too. But kids, kids did that stuff back then. I mean, it was just a totally different. They'd walk time. to school when they're in like first grade mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. earlier, even. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, and let me tell you, we love HelloFresh. We do, and you know what? Going into the fall 
is the best time to sign up for HelloFresh because I know your schedules are crazy, especially if you have kids. Things get a little out of control with all the sports and this, you know. Holidays coming up. Yes, the holidays. Halloween. Lots of things. Labor Day. So let HelloFresh take the meal planning off your to-do list, okay? We're having HelloFresh tonight, actually. Yeah, we are. Actually, we have several options. Which one do you want? We have a spinach ravioli and a cheesy, beefy enchilada one pan. Oh, I like that one. Those are really good. Mainly for me, it's because it makes our life a lot easier. You know, we finish up recording here and we don't have to then go to the grocery store and plan all that out. You know, we have our options. We go home, we cook it. It's quick to make. It always tastes good. And we have it on the table in 30 minutes or less. And... Honestly, the produce is top quality. I don't think I've ever had a spoiled piece of produce come in no. boxes, which is amazing because it's really just that fresh. I mean, they don't call it HelloFresh for no reason. Hello, it's freaking fresh, okay? <laughs> They're not lying. And HelloFresh is more than just dinners. You can stock up your fridge with easy breakfast, quick lunches, and fresh snacks. Just shop HelloFresh Market and add any of these tasty time-saving solutions to your weekly box. And when you get HelloFresh, you know that you're getting top-notch produce because it travels from the farm to your door in less than seven days. So if you want to get started with HelloFresh, you can go to HelloFresh.com slash 50MileHire and use code 50MileHire for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50MileHire and use code 50MileHire for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. That's a fresh new deal. I haven't heard that one yet. Take it's amazing. It's America's number one meal kit. Thank you, HelloFresh. So 20 minutes later, Barbara saw Joan in the Rish driveway. Her car was parked halfway up it. Now this is where things start to get very tricky. Barbara's statements to the police taken on the 24th are relatively similar with some inconsistencies. This is to be expected given the unreliability of eyewitness testimony the shock of what happened and Barbara not thinking what she saw was anything really out of the ordinary initially. It's also unclear if police are paraphrasing what she told them, but these are the things that Barbara has said. She said, quote, I saw her run beside her car. I saw something red. I thought that she was chasing a child and the child was wearing a red jacket. She was running with her arms outstretched. Barbara said this happened around 2.30 p.m. and Joan was wearing a trench coat. But later in that same statement, Barbara says something a little different. She said when Joan ran to the car, she went back to the house again. Barbara said she saw something red, and this took place at 2.15 p.m. About six months later, Barbara did an interview that gave more details. She said on the 24th after 2.10 p.m., she was inside her house with the kids. The two kids were deciding whether or not to play inside or outside. Then Barbara heard a noise. It was Joan. She was sure of it. It was a shouting type noise, more or less scolding or anger rather than screaming or anguish. Barbara looked out her kitchen window and saw Joan. She saw her from the waist up for five or more seconds. Joan leaned forward, ran the length of the car towards the driveway, and then turned around. Barbara remembered seeing something red. At the time, she believed it was a child in a red jacket, but whatever the red thing was, it was close to her and low to the ground. It looked like this red thing was not on her person. Joan appeared to be hurrying, but not sprinting. With the shouting noise, it does sound as if Joan was chasing a kid, maybe David, and scolding him. During this interview, Barbara said she didn't remember Joan going back to the house, so that's somewhat of a contradiction from her original statements. But regardless of the circumstances, as it stands, 
Joan was last confirmed to be seen at 2.15 p.m. that day. Two women later came forward to the police and told them that they had heard a scream between 2 and 3 p.m. that day. And one of the women was Jeanette Schwartz, who lived diagonally across the street from the Riches. She had been playing bridge with three other female friends when they heard a strange noise. One of the women said, what was that? It sounded like a scream or a shout. The women all interpreted this noise differently, though. One thought it was a cat. The other thought it was a child screaming or crying. And one didn't hear anything. Then there were two more potential sightings of Joan. One at 2.45 p.m., someone called the police and reported a woman resembling Joan walking west on Route 2A. This was just 300 yards from her house. The woman appeared to walk aimlessly with no destination. She was hunched over as if she was cold. A light-colored kerchief was tied around her neck in the traditional fashion, and she was wearing a loose-fitting gray coat that went down to her knees. The woman looked to be about in her 30s, and the person reporting the sighting couldn't get a good look at the woman's face, but she appeared to be, quote, untidy. She also noticed no sign of blood or dirt on the woman's legs. Barbara had just seen Joan wearing her tan trench coat, but police found that coat hanging in her downstairs closet. But her gray wool coat was missing, which matched the woman spotted on 2A. It would have taken Joan about three or four minutes to get from her house to this spot on 2A. Then, between 3.15 and 3.30, someone reported another sighting of a woman resembling Joan. She was walking north on the median strip of Route 128 across two lanes of traffic. This was near the Winter Street exit, which was about five to six miles from her home. The witness's name was Eleanor Leary. Eleanor described the woman as wearing a white kerchief tied around her chin. The kerchief covered most of her head and the sides of her face, and her hair was disheveled at her forehead. She was wearing a dark gray or navy blue coat that was below knee length. The woman looked like she was dazed and walked with her head down. Eleanor thought that she was from a mental institution. She was sort of stomping or trudging along the grass median and clutching her stomach as if she was carrying something. But it was the woman's legs that really disturbed Eleanor the most. They appeared to be covered in blood, and it looked like it was streaming down her legs. Then there was another tip that came in from Old Bedford Road, and this came from the Rish's neighbors, the Keens. At 3.25 p.m. that day, their daughter Virginia was walking home from the bus stop when she saw something. When she looked over her shoulder, she saw an unknown car at the end of the Rish's driveway. It was a grayish blue or gray sedan, maybe an Oldsmobile, and it looked dirty. The car was parked facing towards the house, and she thought it had Massachusetts plates, but she couldn't fully remember. Virginia described the car as a 1954 Plymouth. She knew the car was not one of the two that the Rishes owned. The car was spotted again at 3.40 p.m. by Hilda Zeigler, who lived on nearby Virginia Road. At that time, Hilda was driving down Old Bedford Road towards Route 2A. She stopped her car by the Rish's house to let the blue car back out of the driveway. The car proceeded past Hilda's car away from Route 2A, moving north toward Old Bedford Road. She didn't notice anything unusual about the car. Then at 3.45 p.m., Barbara Barker decided to take her kids shopping. Lillian was still playing in her yard, so it was time to bring her back over. Barbara saw Joan's car in the driveway, so she assumed she was still home. She dropped Lillian off at the yard without going in to tell Joan. Lillian walked back in the house and found that it was a mess, and her mother wasn't there, and David was crying in his crib. But being just four years old, she wasn't immediately alarmed. 
She went upstairs and played in her and David's shared bedroom for a half an hour. Lillian was unaware at that point that something was very, very wrong. But gradually, the silence made Lillian anxious. It wasn't like her mother to be absent for this long. At 4.15 p.m., Barbara and the kids returned from their trip, and Lillian walked over shortly after. She told Barbara, quote, Mommy is gone, and the kitchen is covered with red paint. Meanwhile, at 4.25 p.m., another witness reported seeing a woman resembling Joan walking south on the west side of Route 128. This was near Trapello Road exit, about four miles from the Rich family home. The woman walking appeared to be about 35 years old. The front and back of her legs appeared to be covered with blotches of brownish mud. She wore a grayish-colored knee-length coat and a light handkerchief tied at her chin. There were some things that had changed from the previous Route 128 sighting. This time, the woman was not on the median, meaning she crossed two lanes of traffic. She'd also reversed directions, so she was heading south now. Route 128 was and still is a major highway, one of the busiest, in fact, in eastern Massachusetts, with around 40,000 to 75,000 vehicles traveling on it per day. The speed limit was 65 miles per hour. At the time, it was under construction to expand it from four lanes to eight, which this will be an important factor to remember later. By comparison, 2A was a two-lane country road with about 5,000 vehicles on it per day. The road was not safe for pedestrians, and it was narrow, tree-lined, and had no sidewalks, and it was surrounded by either residences or deep woods. So between 4.20 and 4.30 p.m., a very concerned Barbara went to check Joan's house out for herself, entering through the unlocked side door. She was shocked by the scene. She couldn't make any sense of it. That red paint, as many of you probably guessed, was blood. And there was a good amount of it smeared on the walls and on the kitchen floor. The phone had been ripped out from its place on the kitchen wall and thrown into the trash can. The trash can usually sat underneath the sink, but now it was sitting in the center of the kitchen next to a carton of beer. Papers and other items were just scattered around on the floor. And the sight of the blood made her heart stop. She tried calling out Joan's name, but she got no response. She tried searching in the downstairs area, but there was no sign of her. Barbara was still in shock, and David was still crying upstairs, so she got the courage to go upstairs and grab him. She found him sitting in the crib, just like Lillian said, alone and crying with a soiled diaper. Barbara then races back over to her house and calls her neighbor, Jane Butler, who she knew was friends with Joan. She asked if Joan was with her, but Jane said no. So Barbara asked Jane to help her look for Joan. The two women, obviously as frightened as they could be, re-entered the home. Barbara told her not to touch anything. They searched all the rooms again, but couldn't find Joan. They were hesitant at first, but they decided to move a table that had been placed near the cellar door. But when they opened the cellar door, they found nothing. Both women knew that something was seriously wrong. At 4.33 p.m., Barbara called the Lincoln police from her home phone while Jane tried getting a hold of Martin from hers. An officer arrived at the home five minutes later. Initially, he believed that this was a suicide. He began searching the house looking for Joan's body, but when he didn't find it, he knew something was very wrong here. At 4.50 p.m., he dispatched the entire police department to the scene and searched the surrounding area. Again, Joan did not turn up. So now we're going to take a look at all the forensic evidence that did turn up in the house. So there were no signs of a struggle other than an overturned table in the kitchen and, of course, the blood. Besides the scene in the kitchen, nothing else in the house was out of order. The blood on the kitchen floor was spread out, sort of like in an arc. It was as if it had pulled in one spot and was spread across the floor with someone's hand. 
So it looked like someone had tried to clean up the blood, but stopped trying to clean pretty quickly. The blood was mostly dried aside from the parts that had pooled. Another heavy stain was found on the other side of the kitchen floor near the side door entrance. Blood stains were found on the telephone receiver and wall mount. The table under the phone had been overturned in the hallway just outside the kitchen. And just beyond it on the floor, police found an apron and a local telephone directory. It was open to the emergency numbers section. Many reports say that the page was blank, but it doesn't look like it from these photos, but we can't confirm this. Back then, 911 wasn't a thing, so people had to call the number to the local police precinct to get help. On the wall just below the phone, there was a six-inch square blood stain. Police found more blood streaked on the floor and lower wall from the phone to the dining room entrance. The police described this blood as smears with some streaks. The arc started in the corner of the kitchen near the wall-mounted phone and spread several feet to the center of the kitchen. There was a metal chair that stood near the dining room entrance, and on the seat, police found a pair of David's overalls. They also found a pair of his underwear near the side entrance. Both items had blood on them as if they had been used to clean up the floor. It looked like someone had made a quick attempt to clean up the blood in the kitchen but didn't come close to finishing. In the photo, there is what appears to be a partially unrolled roll of paper towels. This was actually a roll of white paper used for drawing. The trash can be found in the center of the kitchen had been moved from its usual spot in the cabinet under the kitchen sink and it was full. The receiver of the phone was hung neatly over the side of the trash can so it hadn't been tossed in, someone placed it intentionally. Other contents of the trash can included empty food jars and cans, two whiskey bottles, a cider bottle, five beer bottles, three paper cups, a broken teacup, and a broken plastic hanger. It turns out that Martin and Joan had finished off a bottle of whiskey the night before, but there was no full explanation for the five empty beer bottles or the second bottle of whiskey. Martin did recall that visitors over the weekend prior had some beers. There was more blood evidence in and outside the house, although it was concentrated in the kitchen. Police found one drop of blood on the first stair leading to the second floor. In the master bedroom, police found eight blood stains, about an eighth to a quarter inch in size. Two other blood stains of similar size were found at the top of the stairs, and one drop of blood was found in the kid's bedroom. There were some small stains just outside of the side door. These stains formed a trail from the door down to the driveway and ending at Joan's car. Her car was an old 1951 Chevy sedan. It looked like nobody had tried to get inside it, but there was a coat hanger sitting on top of it. Oddly enough, there was one one-inch bloodstain on the car's left front hood and two one-inch bloodstains on the back right fender. There was also a two-inch bloodstain on the center of the trunk lid. The blood stopped at Joan's car and didn't go any further than 20 feet down the driveway. There was no weapons found inside of the house and there was nothing that directly pointed to Joan having some sort of accident that caused her to lose the blood either. So obviously this is a crazy scene and it's very hard to make sense of what could have happened here. The blood was sent in for testing at the state police lab and all the tests could determine was the blood type. Oh, the same as Joan's. And even though the blood might look like a lot, it was only about a half a pint worth, suggesting that Joan's injury was not life-threatening. Now, what's interesting is O is actually the most common um, blood type. So this could have been just Joan's or could have been her and another person's or maybe it was, you know, someone completely different than her and not her at all. And even though I feel like when you're describing this whole scene, you think like, dang, that's a ton of blood. There's mm -hmm. blood everywhere. But in reality, it wasn't that much blood. Um, like the human body has about 10 pints of blood and 
blood donations on average take about a pint of blood per donation. And, you know, it was only a half a pint worth. So, so it's like it's a 20th of someone's yeah, full blood content. Which is odd because you think like, like when I was looking at this, my first thought was, oh gosh, did someone like, have, you know, brutally mm-hmm. murder her and then take her body out? Yeah. But it doesn't seem like that's the case at all, really. And it makes you wonder like what actually took place in that house then mm-hmm. especially because it was all spread out that's, all over the place that was weird the kids rooms mm-hmm. too outside in the driveway i mean it was everywhere it seems like contact blood stains too like mm-hmm. blood was spread around by the individual that was bleeding as opposed to like blood spatter from some type of traumatic injury or gunshot or stabbing or something like that mm-hmm. like everything is pooled and smeared yeah versus like seeing spatter on a wall or so you know on the ceiling or something like that Mm -hmm. so it seems like whoever was bleeding was just spreading it all around from location to location and investigators did conclude that joan had not been shot or stabbed however they could not rule out the idea of strangling or suffocation they initially theorized that joan was struck in her head in such a way that her nose started to bleed Latent fingerprints and partial palm prints were found on the phone receiver and on the wall near the phone, forensic investigators found a partial palm print and a partial fingerprint. All but one of the five prints on the phone were belonging to Martin. However, the fingerprint on the phone's receiver, speaker, and the fingerprint on the wall did not belong to Martin. In fact, they didn't belong to Joan or anyone else in the family either. And by 1993, the police had compared 5,000 fingerprints to the ones at the crime scene, and there were no matches. To this day, the fingerprints have not been matched to anyone. So just real quick, what do you think happened here? Like, it seems to me that some type of impromptu medical procedure or something was going on here, and there was somebody there potentially assisting, hence the unknown bloody fingerprints, So the general consensus with this case, and if you haven't already figured it out by now, I mean, it's pretty obvious based Mm -hmm. on what's what's happening here at the scene and the fact that there's coat hangers is that this was a coat hanger abortion. There was somebody there who was perhaps assisting with this and it went terribly wrong. And so they're trying to call for help and then either something happens and they take her, you know, with them or, you know, because it's weird that she was trying to find the emergency numbers and they were clearly trying to call for help but yet they completely abandoned the house Mm -hmm. so that's very strange but it seems like based on the blood and the amount of blood that's there the fact that this is likely not a a fatal wound of some sort um i don't know that that just seems to be the general consensus because i mean i don't really know what else it would be i mean obviously she could have been assaulted and it could have been something like that and that's what what the blood's from but the coat hangers is definitely kind of the odd part the fact that it's mm-hmm. out on the car out there the yep. thing i want to know is like and i assume this wasn't found but was there a coat hanger with blood on it or some you know something to indicate that that's exactly what was going on and i don't think we know that no as far as we know um it was just a metal coat hanger i believe at this point in time we would know if there was blood yeah, on the coat yeah. hanger because we have a pretty exhaustive like inventory of the blood that was found at the house where how large it was stuff like that so 
which could lead you to believing that it wasn't an abortion because you would find blood on the coat hanger for sure. But here's my thing too, just thinking about this is that that would probably be the first thing they would clean. Yeah. If they were trying mm-hmm. to clean up what had just happened there, you'd think they would clean the coat hangers first. But well enough that they wouldn't find anything. I guess But it's, back a, then, it's the early mm-hmm. 60s. Yeah. And again, this is before That's Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. was passed. So this was a common, I mean, it still happens today, but. But yeah, what about. It's overturned today, but. Why, um, why leave it on top of the car? Yeah. See, yeah. Like if you're going to hide. Well, it seems all very like, rushed. What if not it. Not thought through. What if the coat hanger that was used was no longer there and they took it? Like. They could True. they have brought multiple, they had, yeah. used one. That's a great point. Left the others, and that the one that was used is never even was found. Well, and I don't believe that all of the back alley abortions, as they were called, necessitated a coat hanger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of these were performed under the table by doctors, even dentists. With other know. tools, instruments. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, a relatively quick procedure, kind of like how legal abortions are today. Um, it wouldn't have necessarily been a longer, like drawn out process per True. se. Um, definitely l- like less safe though, because it's not, you know, it's not legal, so it's not performed. Yeah, where you can easily the, get help if you lose, mm-hmm. you know, more blood than than you should, and and if something does go wrong, like it it does put those doctors and everything in in jeopardy. Of, right. Mm-hmm. You know, serious charges. That's a good point. I think maybe the coat hanger is is just a coincidence because she was you know if it was her that was seen she had a trench coat on so what if she was just in a hurry like grab your coat out of the closet with the coat hanger and you bring it out of the house real quick and you're trying to throw it on and she just she the plan was to get in the car and then maybe for whatever reason she decided not to or couldn't get into the car for some reason so she just sets the coat hanger on top of the car on, on the way out you know what i mean because there's mm-hmm. multiple coat hangers so i'm thinking yeah. maybe the coat hanger really isn't as significant as maybe as we think but, but then you think back to the witness testimony seeing that person obviously we don't know if it was joan walking with blood dripping down her legs true. and it, like yeah. clenched clutching something on her stomach mm-hmm. i don't know i do want to note too that it's the police you know, don't that's not like their main theory right now. Um, it is like one of the abortion theory is like one of the most popular uh, when people are discussing this case. Mm-hmm. So it's something to keep in mind. I do find it like pretty compelling. I do too. But and, I don't necessarily think it is the for sure no thing that happened here. I mean, no one knows the for sure thing that happened. Because what here. if it was like staged too? Like, what if you staged it to look like that but in fact it was something that would else. be weird but the thing is what would be the point of that the only thing that makes me think maybe it was staged and maybe i'm getting ahead of myself but is the fact that there was so little blood so was she right. did she like inflict some type of wound to make it be like okay there's blood but then obviously not enough to be like actual, actual murder took like right yeah. exactly like cut herself or did something to where you could get blood out and kind of mm drip it around, smear it some, make it look sketchy, and then leave, but be able to leave without, like, bleeding out in your driveway or something. Yes, because we will get to it here, but there is quite a possibility that she staged her disappearance and left on her own accord. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to clarify that it's commonly reported that the police do not have or did not have Joan's fingerprints, and while they didn't have them, Back in 1961, they did get a full set from her elementary school in 1962, so they could use those to compare. Now, Barbara had spotted Joan wearing a tan trench coat at 2.15 p.m., and the trench coat was found 
hanging in the downstairs closet. Joan's purse was still in the house, containing money, keys, makeup, and other items, and it did not appear that Joan took her driver's license. The fact that these were in the house could indicate that she wasn't planning on leaving. Joan also took a daily medication for asthma, and without it, she would be in significant pain and discomfort, but we don't know if Joan took this medication with her. Police searched the house extensively. They also searched Old Bedford Road, the woods around it, the neighbor's properties, and Route 2A. And they all found no sign of Joan. A bloodhound was dispatched to track Joan's scent. The dog tracked it back and forth from Barbara Barker's house, where Joan had been multiple times earlier that day, but the dog didn't pick up a scent on Old Bedford Road or the woods surrounding it. So the dog couldn't pick up her scent anywhere further than the driveway. This made it look like Joan had been picked up by someone. Martin Risch was notified of his wife's disappearance at 11 p.m. that night. He immediately checked out of his hotel and flew home. He arrived at Boston Logan Airport at 1.15 a.m. The day after Joan disappeared, the search continued in full force. Many local volunteers showed up to help. These searchers were joined by the Lincoln Police Department officers, 20 state troopers, 20 state conservation officers, 60 air policemen, police dogs, and two helicopters. Divers even searched the Cambridge Reservoir, which is right near where Joan was potentially spotted, on Route 128, more woods along the highway, ponds, and bodies of water were searched as well. So it was a pretty big search that covered a lot of ground, but again, they didn't find Joan or any trace of her. No cigarette butts, no trash, no clothing, no nothing. The search still continued as time went on, and police canvassed hospitals, mental hospitals, and doctor's offices. Joan's dental x-rays were even posted in professional magazines in case any dentist recognized her teeth. Police sent alerts to libraries and book publishers in case Joan was still alive and looking for work. Joan was a waitress in college, so they even sent alerts to restaurants across the country. The town of Lincoln offered a $500 reward, and the Boston American Record offered $5,000 and ran many articles on Joan's case. Hundreds of letters and phone calls poured in from people offering theories or potential sightings. Police checked out all of these tips. The police questioned Martin and rolled him out as a suspect. He did not fit the profile of someone trying to get rid of his wife and they didn't have any significant marital problems. As far as anyone knew, Joan had no history of mental illness or amnesia, and neither did anyone in her family. Then there was the car that two people saw in the Rich driveway. It had been described as a 1954 Plymouth or 1956 Oldsmobile. At first, the police thought Virginia Keene had seen an unmarked police car that was acting as a speed trap on Old Bedford Road. That, or she had been mistaken about the time, and she'd seen an unmarked police car an hour later that was responding to the Rich home, but Hilda's sighting backed up what Virginia had seen. Plus, the milkman told police he'd seen the car in the driveway that day, but he couldn't remember when. Another witness driving by had recalled seeing it as well, and a different milkman recalled seeing the same car in the Rich's driveway five days earlier on October 19th. Then there was another key witness to the car. Several weeks after Joan went missing, an anonymous man called up the Boston Record American newspaper with a tip. He had seen the car in the Rish's driveway that day. Something about the car made him take note of the plates, which I think is pretty strange that he would wait that long to call and want to be anonymous, but who knows. All he could recall was that the blue Oldsmobile had Massachusetts plates that started with P24. He couldn't recall the other letters or numbers. Also pretty strange. If you're going to take down a license plate, why would you just take down the first half of it? Very weird. The reporter immediately called the police and the cops couldn't track down the anonymous caller, but they followed up on the tip and that led them to 1,100 cars 
that could have been spotted that day. But miraculously, they found and recovered the car in December of 1961. The car had been stolen from its owner, a man from Medford. It seemed like a huge break, but sadly, when they processed the car, they couldn't find any evidence that the car had been used to abduct Joan. Police didn't get anything more out of this lead. They kept looking for similar cars over the years, which probably means they weren't confident that they recovered the right one. There was another person that police looked into as a potential suspect. His name was Robert Foster, and he was a federal parks agent. Around the time that Joan disappeared, the government had plans to turn the neighborhood into what's known today as Minuteman National Historical Park. So the government was going to buy all these homes from their owners, and it was Robert's job to go around the neighborhood and notify homeowners of the selling process and gauge their interest in getting an appraisal. Some of the women living there complained that some of these men had been a bit too friendly, if you know what I mean. When Joan first went missing, neighbors mentioned to detectives that they felt that Robert had, quote, overstayed his visit. So that obviously caught their attention, and they interviewed him. Robert said that he had talked to Joan and another unidentified woman in Joan's home on September 25th, so about a month before she disappeared. He noted nothing strange about this interaction. Robert also had an alibi for October 24th, so police just dropped him as a suspect. But there was another tip that sent investigators looking in an entirely different direction. In 1963, two years after Joan's disappearance, Serene Gearson, a 40-year-old reporter with the local newspaper called The Fence Viewer, went to the local public library to check out a book. Serene picked up a book titled Into Thin Air. This is a novel about a woman who disappeared and left only blood smears and a towel as clues. Serene had flipped to the back of the book, probably to sign her name to check it out, when she noticed something very interesting. It was Joan Rich's signature and the date May 11th, 1961. And Serene had also picked up another book on the disappearance of Brigham Young's 27th wife. Sure enough, she found that Joan had checked it out on September 16th, 1961. And of course, that got her attention. Pretty strange that she happens to pick these two books and finds Joan's name. You think it's suspicious? I do a little bit. Well, she was a reporter. So some reports say that she was like going to get background on the case. Some say that she was just kind of checking it out. And Yeah. I just think it's such a strange coincidence, but maybe she was kind of meant to find them in a way. I mean, Joan did go to the library a lot too. Yeah. So it's very possible that you know, mm-hmm. her name would be in a lot of books there. No, that's true. So from there, Serene enlisted the help of a group of volunteers from the town's library committee to comb the library's books. And what they found added a new layer of mystery to Joan's disappearance and an entirely new theory as to what could have happened to her. They found 24 books checked out from the Lincoln Library starting on April 20th, 1961, using the Rich family library card. And we do know this was Joan and not anyone else in the family. Many of the books were related to people disappearing along with some normal books. So this is a common misconception out there uh, among the uh, web sleuths of the internet is that all 24 of these books were related to disappearances murder, but that is not true. Here are some of the highlights of those books is a novel about a boy that leaves a military academy and hides in the woods, a thriller about a woman who kills her husband and arranges for her fingerprints to be disguised, a novel concerning flight from problems, and an autobiography of a leading authority concerning murders and disappearances. There's more, though. April 29th, The Hunt for Richard Thorpe, A Schoolboy Disappears on Purpose, A Book He Has Been Reading is a Clue, June 25th, Death of the Hard, An Orphan Girl Disappears, 
August 2nd, The Screaming Rabbit, a novel in which a man disappears. October 2nd, Incense to Idols, a novel about a woman who flees Paris for New Zealand. There's also a lot of books concerning nature. There's a Thoreau book, A Field Guide on Trees, a novel titled Breath of Air, and a travel book. It's been widely reported that all the books were related to disappearances, but as we can see from the list of books, this isn't true. Other things to consider, people reported that Joan was always interested in mysteries. That fact is open to interpretation in this context, but also it's important to note that these books were not how-to manuals. If she was staging a disappearance, she'd have a lot of practical logistical concerns that these books wouldn't really help with, like changing her identity, staying unnoticed for decades, and starting up a new life with a new social security number, money, a new home, etc. But it's clear that she had an interest in disappearance and true yeah, crime I, I in general. Yeah, I don't think you completely discount that at all. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that is definitely a, a connection there. I Do also, you think it's possible she used these books, though, as inspiration? Perhaps not sure. how-to manuals, but... Yeah, maybe like triggered something. She had an interest in it, maybe. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that she had travel books. Mm -hmm. You know, that really aligns with the idea that she wasn't really happy being this homemaker housewife, and even the nature more for herself. Yeah, Mm -hmm. she did love nature though. But what if she was looking to go live off grid in nature somewhere, perhaps? And maybe the nature books assisted with that. Well, maybe they don't necessarily. like align with what exactly she was going to do. But I think it shows that she had an interest in the world beyond, which is common. Like most beyond people. New York. Yeah. Yeah. But there were also other books um, mixed in. She liked like a lot of historical stuff about, um, I think like the Tudor period and Mary queen of Scots. Hmm. So it, it wasn't all just nature and field guides and yeah. disappearances. They and- don't all align with the mm-hmm. theories here, but. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to note. It's definitely interesting, but, you know, we're all very interested in. Right. I was going to say, I yeah, would read any that. of those probably. Yeah, sounds so. like my library checkouts as well. So, like, we kind of talk about a lot of this stuff, but it's like, would you know how to just kind of disappear without a trace? No. Really get away with it? Like, where would you even start? No. Hmm. I would. <laughs> I just okay. go in the middle of the woods somewhere and that's it. All right. Be self sustainable. Why don't you try it? We can do a nice little... I would love to see you try to be self-sustainable. <laughs> mm-hmm. See how long it takes maybe me to find your ass. Maybe there'll be a new series we do. Josh goes and lives in the Naked woods. Naked and afraid. <laughs> there we go. You would not last. Are you kidding me? Sure I would. Without a fan, you would die. Yeah. Uh, I'll go somewhere cool. I'll go up north. Go to Canada. Okay. All right. But after these books were recovered, there weren't any other promising leads in this case. However, we do need to talk about the Natras family and their relationships with Joan before she disappeared. There are some letters investigators learned of that offer troubling insights into Joan's home life growing up, and these letters have not been widely reported on. Like we mentioned before, Frank Natras wasn't really a good man. He was intimidating, controlling, and he didn't provide for the family. In August of 1962, Joan's aunt, Florence Barr, did a phone interview with police, and she told the police outright, that Frank had molested Joan growing up, as we mentioned before. Florence said that Joan told her stepmother Alice about this for the first time a week before she disappeared. That's interesting. Maybe that plays into this. This was the state of the family dynamic. According to Florence, Frank had been living off his sister Grace. When she became sick, Joan's stepbrother Peter and her husband helped Alice and her daughter Evelyn move to California. Evelyn is Alice and Frank's daughter. She is 15 years younger than Joan, but since Frank was a deadbeat... Joan had to care for her a lot, so she became very close with Evelyn and absolutely adored her. 
But in the years before Joan's disappearance, after Grace became sick, Martin and Peter wanted Evelyn and Alice away from Frank. Evelyn was becoming troublesome and they wanted her away from his influence. Joan was very close with her three stepbrothers growing up, especially Peter. But when her stepbrother Ben grew older, he started to really take after his father, unfortunately. He wasn't a good provider. He drifted a lot and he was always sort of an oddball. And he and Frank were very close, so Joan didn't talk to him much. At the time, Frank was trying to coax Alice and Evelyn back from the West Coast, and Joan was very worried that he would succeed. She didn't want what happened to her happening to Evelyn. So a week before she disappeared, she sent Alice a letter telling her what happened. Florence's interview with the police contains this statement. I have literally told the FBI that if Frank Natris did not do this himself, he sent his son or paid someone to do it. This is where things get murkier. Florence wasn't 100% right on the details, and some of what she is saying can't be fully confirmed for one key reason. The bombshell in the letter in question from Joan to Alice is gone. Alice has confirmed receiving such a letter. It detailed Frank's abuse of Joan, but she says she burned it after reading it. Peter's wife, Pat, thinks that the letter was sent in May or June of 1961, but Alice believes it was closer to August of that year. A letter from Pat to Joan from September 27th included this statement. Alice said she had received a letter from you that made her sick for three days and nauseated for the following two weeks. It must have been pretty bad. If it is what I am thinking, it would be dangerous for Evelyn to be around Pop. In January of 1963, Alice described this letter to police from her memory. She said that Joan, quote, said that she had experiences as a child, a teenager, that on, I have to find the words, on certain grounds, that I could either file for divorce or have Frank put in an institution. Alice said that Joan did not go into further detail about what happened, just that this had been going on since she was 13 or 14. And when she had the, quote, strength to oppose him, she turned against him. Joan said that the purpose of this letter was to stop her from moving back in with Frank because she didn't want the same thing happening to Evelyn. The police interviewed Frank and asked him about these allegations. And of course, he denies all of them. His fingerprints did not match the latent fingerprints found in the Rish home. He only took two polygraphs and the results for both were inconclusive. Police also confirmed that Frank had an alibi and was at work for all of October 24th. And Ben Natris's prints did not match the ones at the scene either. He was working as a bartender from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. that night that Joan disappeared. His boss said that she couldn't remember if Ben was working that day and she didn't keep books to confirm if he was there. An investigator did note that Ben didn't seem like he was lying and his grief over Joan's disappearance seemed genuine. And that same detective noted that Ben's roommate was a, quote, ne'er-do-well, which is a common expression back then for a bad, shady person. But we don't know anything more about that. Investigators did try to interview everyone connected to Joan again in 1963. They could locate everyone except Ben. And when they tried to track him down, someone told them that he had been, quote, serving time in the clink during 1962, but they didn't have any record of this. Regardless, they couldn't track him down. The Rishas stayed in the Lincoln home for 14 years after Joan disappeared until the land was taken over by the park. Martin never even changed the home phone number. And when he did move, he stayed in South Lincoln. 
Both of Joan's kids went to college. David stayed on the East Coast while Lillian moved out West. Martin Risch never remarried and he wouldn't talk about the case for many years and rarely gave comments to media outlets, but he did give his theory as to what happened once. He believed Joan was alive. She might have had some sort of amnesia episode walked off and can't remember who she is. But regardless, Martin felt the great loss of his wife for his whole life. So did his kids as well as Joan's family and friends. Martin Risch passed away in 2009 at the age of 79. In 2017, a silver alert was issued in Haverhill, Massachusetts for Joan's son, David Risch. He had gone missing from a senior care facility at the age of 58. He was reported as having severe memory impairment, but he was luckily found safe shortly after. That is very interesting, though, to keep in mind. Yeah. Joan would be 93 today, and to this very day, her case is still unsolved. So if any of you out there happen to have any information about the disappearance of Joan Carolyn Risch, please contact the Lincoln Police Department at 781-259-8111. So what do we think? I don't know what to think because this was so old that I question the investigation, the witness statements. I mean, so much of it. We, I feel like we don't even barely know anything about Joan. True. And I don't think the witness statements, I think we should just discount those because yeah. those seem... I don't know. Uh, I think there's yeah. a lot of all of them. As we or know, which one? Well, I don't think you can completely discount them. But I'm but just saying for the sake take of them with a grain of salt yeah. type situation. Yeah. I do think be, we don't have enough about her and her character to make a judgment on what things she would have done or if she would have left her family. Um, because back then, people put on such a facade, and people still do today, but especially back then, of being like the perfect housewife, the perfect woman, and oh, she was so happy. How much do we actually know about her? How much did she feel comfortable sharing with anyone about who she truly was or how she truly felt about things? And since there's been so much time, people have made theories and kind of shifted who she is and come up with these other ideas of she wanted to leave the, you know, the books and reading too much into everything because we don't have enough. True, so but it, we do know that she was quiet, so she kept things to herself most likely. But and also there but were reports. So were a lot of women back then. It was kind of like that's how you were. True to some extent, but I think you can't discount the fact that people did say she. It was known that she wasn't happy not working anymore and just being a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, but then there were people that said she was happy and loved her life and seemed like she was doing great. But based on and based on what she was doing before she was a very ambitious person she was very driven she, i think maybe maybe she wasn't happy but again why would you would that lead you to stage a disappearance in order to go and fulfill your your career goals right? well you certainly don't get divorced back then right for just the reason of like i'm bored and want to do something else in my life and, and who knows if their relationship is really that great yeah like that's what everyone wants you to think especially back then again you know you put on that facade of the perfect life and everything was fine and who who really knows i'm not accusing martin of anything but we don't really know if she was in a dangerous situation or unhappy um you know people are saying she's a devoted mother why would she ever leave her children how much of that do we know is true although you know i think it goes against most motherly instincts to leave your child in a crib and your other kid just across the street but maybe that to her that was like safe. Her kid was yeah. across the street with a neighbor that she trusted, That's and true. like yeah, her son was 
you know, not with anyone, but he wasn't, he was in a crib. So physically Mm -hmm. he was safe. And Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. figured that it probably wouldn't be long before someone, you know, found him. It's not like he would die there and, you know, someone would take him and then take care of him that way. So did she kind of think things through in the best way she could, you know, leaving her kids as safe as she thought she could leave them without causing too much of a, you know, people to raise their eyebrows. So let's go down the road of she purposely staged her disappearance. Do you think she did that alone or did somebody help her? In most cases, I'd say there's somebody that helps you do that. And that aligns with the car in the driveway, the Oldsmobile, correct? Yes. Or a Plymouth. Or it could be a Plymouth. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Um, The other thing, too, is just the whole bloody scene that's left there. To mm-hmm. me, my first instinct was potentially this is a stage scene of some sort. But why not leave? They didn't find any weapons in the house or like any indication as to like how she sustained the injury. They were able to say she wasn't stabbed or she wasn't shot. So it's like, why not? If you're staging your disappearance and you want to make it look like someone has abducted you, then why not leave like a weapon behind? Because why stage your disappearance with all the blood if you're not trying to make it look like something nefarious happened right. to you. Why not just like but also, yeah. leave nothing behind? But also she could be thinking that, you know, this person wouldn't leave a weapon behind as potential evidence. Like if you were going to abduct someone, why would you leave your weapon behind? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But I just think she would maybe like leave another clue to at least like point people in that direction and not not think that she staged her disappearance or something like that. Like uh, there was no signs of forced entry. So maybe like a broken window or, you know, you kick the door or something. There was no weapon. There was no signs of forced entry. It's all, it's, it, it makes you feel like she, sh- she would have left something other than just blood and an overturned table, mm-hmm. which that table, by the way, it also kind of looks like a chair. It's been reported as a table, but it kind of looks like a chair from the pictures um, that you would like sit on while you're on the phone. Yeah. Which is also like another weird thing to consider. Because it is like, how did she injure herself? It, it seems like the blood kind of originated maybe by the phone. Hmm. How did it get like moved from that corner of the room to somewhere different? Mm-hmm. That's know? what I'm and saying. It, like sitting down, what do you, you're not standing up. It's not like you slip and fall. Maybe she was standing, but it's just interesting. I think the way the blood is found makes me believe more it was some sort of Either it was cleaned up because something went wrong or it was trying to make it look a certain way because of just all the different places that it's found. So what about the idea that there was an abortion? I don't think you can discount that. I don't either. I think the So like was she seeing somebody behind her husband's back? Totally could have been. Something happened. She she got pregnant. She wanted to take care of it without him knowing. Mm-hmm. She arranges an abortion to be done at her house. Whoever comes and does it, something perhaps goes wrong. She freaks out, tries to call for help. Maybe the other person who did it thought she was going to die or something like that. Perhaps the other person her calls for help. Perhaps kidnaps her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or... Is yeah, like didn't she's want to be calling for help. He for reaches it. up, tries to like get her to hang up the phone or something like that mm-hmm. because now whoever is responsible is going to be on the hook for her potentially dying or whatever went wrong. And 
it escalates from there. But again, it's like the fact that she is potentially seen walking. I mean, it seems likely it was her that was seen because people notate seeing the brownish mud on the back of the legs. And that, that's a very blood. weird thing to, that's a very, I don't know, that's a big detail yeah, to for notice. Multiple, for two, at least people to have noted that. So why would they let her out if they did take her in the car and left this left the house? Why would she then get out? Why would they risk her being seen? Why not just Is it possible that no one else was involved? She gave herself tried to give herself an abortion and it went wrong and then she left. But then what was that other car doing there? But then again, we don't know for sure what that other car was. It could have been the cop later that was seen. I mean Yeah, it could have the been the car may anything. not even be a a legitimate piece of evidence right. to what actually That's happened why this here. is so tough is there's so many elements to this that are like mm. what about suicide is that a possibility i mean wouldn't she likely have been found like what if she did try to harm herself at the house and then left or had some type of mental health break she likely would have been found or there would have been some evidence of that if she was trying to take her own life what would she have done that would have accounted for the blood in the house yeah and then you know then her like leaving to do what it kind of doesn't make sense and i don't think that she would deliberately try to take her own life mm -hmm. in the house while her daughter is away knowing full well that she's gonna come home and see that yeah and that to me is also the biggest problem with the abortion theory because you know why would she be doing this at at like right around the time that David's supposed to wake up from his nap. Yeah, the yeah. timing but is bizarre. Maybe she had an abortion previous, like a day or so prior and then had there was complications or hemorrhaged and then it's like a delayed, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I guess Injury opened back it. up or mm -hmm. something. And, and she felt like shameful or didn't want anyone to find out about it, so she left. Yeah. And instead of like calling for help, Cause you know, because with the the medical accident, people are like, well, why didn't she then just go across the street to call for help? Why would she be walking away? And that's when you kind of start bringing up the amnesia. But with the mm. with the abortion theory, it's like, well, maybe, you know, something went wrong and she, she can't go to the neighbors because she's this is something like illegal. Yeah, I think that's more likely, probably. But at the same time, it's like, why do it when Lillian is over at the neighbor's house and she didn't say anything to Barbara like I'm going to be doing this I need peace and quiet can you watch her for a little bit like why not do it earlier like right after she puts David down from the the nap and bring like Lillian over then and yeah maybe like, she could walk back in at any moment no, or the neighbors very could true. see like it's not very good timing at all and mm -mm. yes they David are could like wake up at any point yeah right and like need tending to and so mm -hmm. it's like it it could have been like a very quick procedure but those are still like those minutes become a lot longer in theory when you think that those are all minutes that someone could just walk in and announce yeah what if she had an abortion the tape day prior or something and then was you know doing her routine went to the dentist whatever put her son down and then things started going wrong she started cramping or like slightly bleeding and was like oh shit i need to go deal with this drops mm -hmm. lillian off goes mm -hmm. home and then shit hits the fan then it's like that's Maybe why she dropped her off because she knew that she had to, she was having some type of issue. It's also been theorized that the dentist appointment that she was at was potentially her getting an abortion. Which yeah, the dentist has been interviewed mm -hmm. and he's like, no, but obviously he's not going to be like, yeah, I did it. Yeah. I think 
there could have been a complication as a result of that dentist appointment for several reasons. I thought about that too. Yeah. One being 11 cavities at one appointment yeah, is a lot. a lot. I've done seven and that was pretty brutal. And, and you had, you know, yeah. And like generally in, in addition to just like local anesthetic, like I, I think I took some sort of like, you had laughing gas, but no, I didn't have laughing gas. I think I had a Valium or something like that. Mm. Um, to help with it, but eleven is significant. The other thing too is I was doing some research on allergy. Like if you're allergic to lidocaine, and we don't even know. I mean, we don't even know fully, perhaps all the you know the different medications that were used. I mean, for all we know, there could have been something else, or but there could have been a reaction between that appointment. She only had one cavity filled. Yeah. It was the previous appointment where she had eleven filled. And she, if so, earlier that month, she had her 11 cavities filled. Clearly, she used anesthetic then or lidocaine. lidocaine. So if she was allergic, she would have already had the reaction before she went for her second appointment with just one more cavity. I think it is interesting, too, that she had the 11 filled before, and now she's coming back to get just the one. Mm -hmm. Right. Either way, though. Was she really going back for a cavity, or did she have 11 cavities and needed to go back for some other reason. How common was it for dentists to perform abortions back then? Well, back when it was illegal, like anyone with any sort of medical degree. What well, was illegal? You, so it's like, it's, that would it's be hard to get like a, a number. Why, yeah, would, right? why would they risk like their whole career in mm-hmm. practice to mm-hmm. do that? I mean, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but. Well, I mean, it very well they, could have happened. They had to be performed somewhere. So it's, you know. What if it was either you do it yourself or you try and get anyone with any sort of medical background to help you? Mm -hmm. I mean, better a dentist than no one, I guess. Yeah, this is this is interesting. This is completely random, but it kind of plays into this idea of. I think there could have been some sort of mental psychotic episode or something related to amnesia that happened because I found an article, an individual in the UK that went in for routine dental work. Um, on one of his teeth and afterwards he like suffered severe memory loss like for the rest of his rest of his life i'm pretty sure like he couldn't he could remember things in the past but all future memories were gone didn't we cover something like that on one of our like bizarre health maybe i don't know kind of vaguely remember that but like all of his future memories he's not able to retain them Mm. so like he completely forgot who what was happening afterwards which i don't know if that necessarily lines up with this because she knew the neighbors she knew like her kids and stuff but i just thought it was weird that there is is a reported case of somebody suffering from amnesia and this is a medical mystery like they don't they haven't been, been able to figure out exactly what this individual what happened to them but something within the brain unexplained happened and now suffers from memory loss after just having his teeth worked on but if she was having some type of episode like that again wouldn't she have been found at some point by someone well if she just walked away from the house how long after he got the dental work did you if you it was like as soon as he was done in the chair well so she i mean she drove back and then like mm-hmm. ran errands and, true so i don't know it's and the blood just like stops in the driveway mm-hmm. so it's not like she walked off or i mean she maybe it's stop by then but it almost seems as if she was taken into a car in the driveway where the blood trail stops right well, if she just walked down her street there you would think there would be blood trail to follow and you would think that the bloodhound they brought in would be able to follow the scent farther than it did it never made it out of the driveway or 
across the street. So let's go down the path of this had nothing to do with an abortion. The hangers were just there for whatever reason. And someone kidnapped her. How would that have worked? Could she have been like fighting back? And that's why there wasn't that much blood. Maybe she was just cut or injured in some way. And then the reason the blood trail stops is because someone took her in their car. But then how do you explain the later sightings, which may not have been her? True. We don't know for sure. But it is weird that that woman was like seen wearing the coat. Yep. This one is fucking But again, like a coat like that is pretty common. The cars that they saw, pretty common. So I don't think you can necessarily say with any shred of confidence that that was her. The neighbors did say they heard the scream. Right. And then the whole situation with Frank Natris is very weird. Seems like there's there's probably more to that family and what's going yeah. on underneath the surface that we don't know that could potentially like he was cleared, lead to but something more sinister happening. Was he? Well, and, he had an alibi. But, yeah. But it doesn't but again, mean back then, someone hired somebody to do something. And somebody within that family may or may, or may not have known that Martin was out of town at the time when this all happens but again it's weird the window of time is just something i can't get over that 12 to 2 her son's napping and she's she's somewhat flustered when she drops lillian off there's just something weird there or it's a combination of things potentially maybe she was i mean people there there's a lot of things that happen that just have no rhyme or reason to it when it comes to people developing amnesia or having some sort of like maybe she had a seizure. I mean, there's a lot of different medical things that could have happened as a result of of whatever injury she sustained that led her to wander off. But again, you would think she would turn up at some point, right? The fact well, that she's disappeared without a trace from this point forever seems seems to point to likely kidnapping murder theory. A lot of people do think that she hasn't been recovered because the sightings on Route 128 were fairly accurate you could it, it seems hard to believe that she got from 2a to 128 in the amount that short amount of time it was yeah like a half right, hour or something right. it was multiple like five miles. Or six miles yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. a there's no way that that she was able to do that there's just no way but at the time you have to remember like you have to go back home and call 911 like once you get to your destination there's no phone so you can't do it like right away and people's recollections of times and stuff are are hazy and they might not report things right away because they don't it might there's people see odd shit every day and they're not you know going to call the police about it every single time unless they maybe later have like a reason to mm. so mm-hmm. some people think that yes the sightings were correct and she was disoriented from some sort of like amnesia you know medical thing or whatever yeah. and she fell into the construction pits mm-hmm. along it's route 128 and was yeah essentially buried under the rubble in the road and, and that's she, why she's never been wow. found yeah that's an interesting it's idea. a possibility that i think you have to consider or she really just staged this and left and started a new life which is totally possible to it's me, hard though, to do though yeah it's hard. that's the theory i like lean to the least really yeah i think it's more likely that i don't know i, I just think that i they're all a bit more likely than that i don't know which way i kind of lean to may i think the abortion theory has a lot of things going for it but it could be a combination and it 
That's kind of wasn't what an I'm abortion. Thinking. Like maybe she had a was suffering a miscarriage. She didn't even know she was pregnant, mm-hmm. and the blood loss. I don't know. It doesn't seem like enough to like be causing amnesia, but maybe then it was a, a medical thing, and she hit her head maybe against her nose. But she mm-hmm. hit her head in such a way that it caused a brain injury. I don't. I the don't know. thing though about like the blood loss is, like we keep saying, it's not that much because um you lose like roughly five tablespoons per single period and then vaginal childbirth is around one pint so a miscarriage would be obviously somewhere between those two and she only lost half a pint so about half the amount of childbirth is that enough to make you like delusional and yeah i don't think so i believe like it's around like two or three three don't quote me on that but like more than that that you would start feeling having like, uh symptoms with like your blood pressure and heart rate and like you know yeah it certainly weird, wasn't enough for that weird things would get really serious mm-hmm. plus the police they put out a lot of info to all the surrounding areas like the huge search it'd be really hard to she'd have to completely like leave the state be completely gone in that short amount of time unless she was driven somewhere and then taken after the fact but it's so i feel like that's pretty rare that that happens it is interesting that those who knew her say that she loved being a mother that she would have absolutely yeah. welcomed another child that being pregnant wouldn't have been bad news to her but again how much do you really know about people especially back then and it's possible she it wasn't like a lover that got her pregnant there you know wasn't a lover it could have been the the case where you know she got pregnant with Martin's child and mm-hmm. just didn't want to have another. Right. I want the kids to grow up and I want to become a teacher. Maybe I want to do it earlier than that. I yeah. just don't want to do it, you know. Yep. Is it possible she had a miscarriage? Why. Yeah, it's absolutely possible she had a miscarriage. That it was just like a... a Spontaneous mis- miscarriage. Yeah, that just happened and she... It's possible she didn't even know she was pregnant, had a miscarriage. A lot of people who have miscarriages don't even know they're having one. They just think it's mm-hmm. a heavy period. Yeah. And this is the really crazy thing, I think, is that if they had the technology that we have today, we would have so many more answers. And I, I just wonder, like, if it's possible that they still have blood samples that from them that they could test or something like that, because they could only find out that she had type O blood. They couldn't even find out if it was O positive yeah, or O negative. Crazy. And it's like, you think about what we can do with DNA today. Like, I don't know. Maybe they could be able to find out where the blood originated from in her body or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure we would be able to find out a lot more today. I hope that this one's so frustrating. Yeah, maybe there's a chance that they have samples that they could test or. Yeah, maybe. But we just don't know. I don't think you can discount Martin either. He believes his wife was alive. He refused to declare her dead. Yeah, I mean, if anyone were to know her. Because, like, Mar- they, it seems like they talked quite a bit, and maybe that was something yeah. that he knew was a possibility. Does he, has he ever stated whether or not he thinks that she purposely left or was taken, or he's has he like, elaborated more? He said that, like, something like that would be completely out of her character. And by all accounts, it seems like he does not at all believe that she would have staged her own disappearance. So that's something to consider. God, what a wild one. The other thing that's weird, too, is all the alcohol bottles that that was found in the trash. There was a lot there. Yeah. But again, maybe it was them that drank it. 
or somebody had come over and they had had some drinks or they used the whiskey for something. If they use the whiskey as like that's what I was a just thinking. Yeah. And like kind of a sedative before oh, performing yeah. the abortion. What if she's drunk? Or to clean. Or to clean. Does alcohol make your blood thinner? Like are you yes. at a higher chance of bleeding? I see it. That's what makes me think that maybe they wouldn't if it was like a doctor that came in. Mm. Like maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, but if that would increase that's a good question, the risk really, of let's look that up. Yeah. It seems, and I don't, this is just from yeah. some random article. I don't know the sources behind this, but it seems like Martin dismissed the abortion theory because she loved her children. She loved being a mother. And he also dismissed the theories that she planned her disappearance. It seems like Martin thinks this was like some sort of freak accident that happened and that she was suffering from amnesia or severe confusion or something like that based on whatever happened and really just got got lost i guess wandered away got lost and just never remembered who she was again and then just started living a totally new life but that seems i mean god how often does that happen i think that if she did have some sort of like amnesia episode that unfortunately she didn't like you know she's not alive she's still technically could be alive she'd be 93 but i think if it was an amnesia episode that she to me it would seem likely that she fell into the construction pits or otherwise you know mm. got herself into some sort of accident and died like shortly after this this randomly pops into my head but do you remember that story of that skier who went missing from the new york mountain slopes and then he ended up yep in california oh, that, yeah still i covered that one his, that was fucking his wild. ski clothes six days later yep and he doesn't even know how he got there. And wasn't that video like removed by YouTube for me or something weird? There was something weird around that. I don't even know if it's still out there. You should look. But I remember there was some like it was taken down. And I don't think they. Yeah, I don't think it's out there. Anymore. Figured out anything that happened. Like there was no, no there drugs, was like no, no follow up with it. I remember. And it was so strange. And then I'm. Almost positive something happened with my video. Like it was taken down and I couldn't understand what why. What was that dude's name? Oh, it was. It, it was definitely taken down. It's uh, Danny Philippidis. Yeah, I remember YouTube took it down for some reason. I couldn't. I never got an answer from them as to why. 3,000 miles. Oh, there's an interview with him on the Toronto City News. A Toronto man. Skiing head injury. Bring him across the country. That's the thing is if you just hit your head a certain way... It's possible to suffer from yeah. amnesia. I guess it's easy to say, like, it's hard to believe she would have been functioning enough to then leave and not, and to, like, organize that, but he somehow got there. I don't know. Weird stuff. So weird, weird stuff happens. I think this is one of those cases where we will never know what would actually happen. I think I'm most inclined to believe... I, do, I kind of think that there was an abortion that happened. And back then, sometimes people were desperate and they had to turn to kind of shady characters to perform yeah. abortions. And is it possible that that's originally why they came? And then once things started, who knows what could have happened? And then I believe that maybe she was kidnapped and murdered. Or what if she just got drunk, hit her head? I mean, there's a bunch of started bleeding from her head. It could be anything. And then she suffered amnesia. But why get drunk like in the middle of the day when you're like taking taking care of the kids? Well, we, I mean, she might have had a beer with lunch. 
Yeah, I mean, she could have been, maybe she was just drinking all day. I mean, we don't know. She could have been drinking the entire time. But it is weird that someone else's handprint was on the phone. Maybe she tried to call for help and they took it from her. How solid is that, though? I don't know. I mean, none of of it's solid because of the time period. And these um, witness statements are sketchy, too. I don't know. I don't know. This is a super strange one. We definitely want to hear your thoughts. So let us know. Um, in the comments below and then also on Instagram we'd love to hear your feedback there as well what theory makes most sense to you what do you think happened to Joan Rish but that is going to be it for us today we will be back next week but until then keep taking your mind a mile higher